This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African perspective. We're broadcasting to you live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're on the frequency 15235 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to West Africa. My name is Samara Mangiesi, standing in for Spumeli Lezondi, and with me on the show tonight is Zwalani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard, and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Malawi passes a law that will ban politicians using cash payments and other incentives to buy support ahead of key polls due to uh, be in May next year. Now the globe continues to mark the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. And today marks the International Volunteer Day. Lastly in sports, Kenyan President congratulates Eluidi Kipchoge on his IAAF Male Athlete of the Year Award. But first, we cannot start it off without finding out what is happening in the world of news with Zwalani. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. South Africa's National Council of Provinces has adopted the report of the Constitutional Review Committee, which recommends the amendment of the Constitution to allow for the expropriation of land without compensation. The National Assembly adopted the report on Tuesday. Parliamentary spokesperson Molotomotapo explains the process that will be followed, leading to the eventual constitutional amendment. The matter now will require the National Assembly to initiate a process that can be driven by a committee of parliament. We don't know what kind of committee the National Assembly will decide. That will then work towards the initiation of a, a bill that will follow a thorough process of a development of a bill, which includes public participation, ensuring that people of South Africa in all the nine provinces uh, participate. Lawmakers in Sudan have backed a constitutional amendment that would extend term limits, paving way for President Omar al-Bashir to seek re-election in 2020. Al-Bashir has been in power since 1989. He is not permitted to stand again when his present term ends under the current constitution, which allows for a two-term limit. Parliament Speaker Ibrahim Ahmed Omar says he's received a letter signed by majority lawmakers backing an amendment that would extend the limit. Gabon's President Ali Bongo is recovering well after being hospitalized in Morocco. Prime Minister Emmanuel Ngodet made the comments after meeting the president in the capital Rabat. Ngodet had previously traveled to Morocco accompanied by senior officials to visit Bongo in hospital. The 59-year-old statesman who fell ill in October at an economic forum arrived in Morocco last week following a month's treatment at a hospital in Saudi Arabia for the illness that has not been officially revealed. Turkish prosecutors have issued arrest warrants for two senior Saudi officials suspected of planning the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul. The city's chief prosecutor says a strong suspicion that two men were involved. They are believed to be close to Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports from Istanbul. Ahmad al-Asiri and Saud al-Qatani are the most prominent figures being investigated by Saudi Arabia for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. The former was the deputy head of intelligence, the latter the closest advisor to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. 
Now Turkey has issued arrest warrants for both, a senior official here saying the government does not believe that the Saudi authorities will take formal action against them. Turkey wants the extradition of all those involved in the killing, but Riyadh has refused. In Ankara and increasingly in Washington, there's the belief that Saudi Arabia is pinning the murder on high-ranking officials to protect the crown prince. And finally, the EU agency that deals with cross-border crime, Eurojust, says nearly 90 people have been arrested in a major operation against the Italian mafia. Officials say they seized more than $2 million, more than 1,000 kilograms of cocaine, and a large quantity of ecstasy. The vice president of Eurojust, Filippo Spezia, announced the arrests. This operation showed two important things. First, that transnational crime can be effectively opposed and defeated if we make a full use of all European opportunities. Second, EU is not something bureaucratic far away from the citizen, but the EU institutions are alive, ready to take action, capable to support national authorities and to make safer the life of our citizen. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Malawian political analyst Ernest Tindwa says the newly enacted law uh, that criminalizes vote buying in the southern African country will fail to achieve its intended objectives because of high levels of poverty in the country. Now Malawi has passed a law that will ban politicians using cash payments and other incentives to buy support ahead of key polls due in May next year. The Political Parties Act will see candidates convicted of improperly swaying the electorate face uh, fines of up to $13,300 or Five years in prison. Campaign materials, including posters, leaflets, and clothing, will be exempt from the new law. Tindwa says it will be difficult to enforce the law as political parties are not keen to stop the practice. The law is, is indeed good, but I don't think it will be enforced. It will not be in, enforced because, in my view, the key stakeholders who are politicians, more so the ruling party, is not keen to stop uh, at the practice of defacing handouts to the electorate. You know, the problem with Malawian politics is that there is no policy differentiation between the parties and between the candidates. Therefore, our choices are more so determined by how much one can promise in terms of monetary incentives to the voters. So the, the ruling party, as well as the opposition, none of these stakeholders is keen to stop the practice, essentially because they don't have anything different in offering to the electorate. So I don't see the law being affected much as it has been passed. Now, do you think it will also be difficult to implement this law uh, because of the high level of poverty in the country? Certainly, poverty in Malawi is high and employment is, 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 is high and indeed, uh, uh, most electorates think that uh, their politicians don't serve them that well. The only time the politicians uh, need to pay back is the electioneering time. That's the time electorates think that they have the opportunity to scheme the, the candidates. So on both ends, the, the politicians themselves and the, the voters are keen to have a patronage or indeed the handout in this space because that is part of uh, uh, the political practice.
Does uh, this ban apply to campaign materials uh, such as posters, leaflets, and clothing? It's about money. It's about items. You know, politicians in Malawi can give anything. They can give money. They can give food items such as maize flour, sugar. So whatever seems to be important to the voters is being given in an effort to voters. And as I said, the electorate are keen to have these things given to them by politicians this time around because according to the to most voters, this is a time of payback for the politicians. What does this law say, Mr. Tindra, in terms of the consequences for anyone found in contravention of the law. Anybody found in contravention of the law will certainly be prosecuted. And the, the penalty is is fight by wide so. ranging. It can can range from a mere fine to even imprisonment, really depending on the scale or the, the magnitude of the practice to give a handout. And that was Ernest Tindor, Malawian political analyst on the line talking to Kumbelo Menzelele from the capital Lilongwe. Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Nagwagwa, does not have to release the report from the Khalema Mutlante-led commission of inquiry. Now, according to the presidential spokesperson, George Charamba, Nagwagwa is not obliged to release the report from the inquiry, which is looking into the killings of six people in Harare after Zimbabwe's elections in August last in August this year. Now, in the past few days, there have been uh, complaints from the NGO forum claiming that there was a lack of transparency on the handling of evidence during the commission. Now, Dewa Mabinga called uh who is a researcher at human rights watch says that key witnesses and victims were not called forward to testify before the commission we had submitted evidence through the zimbabwe human rights ngo forum and the zimbabwe association of doctors for human rights but these victims were not called forward uh, to testify their testimony was ignored uh, while the commission focused on political leadership. Number two, the commission did not sufficiently address the question of how they were going about their business of calling forward witnesses. It was not clear who was eligible to testify or not. Number three, there was no indication about the security of the victims and uh, people who testified. So, for example, we received reports of people who then received threats following their testimony uh, before the commission. And it was unclear what power the commission had uh, to protect the witnesses. Uh, And finally, despite commitment and indications uh, from the president of Zimbabwe that the results, the report from the commission would be made public, it has not been made public. And now, as we have correctly said, we are receiving reports from people like George Charamba uh, in government that the commission's report is for the eyes of the president only, which is quite strange given that the hearings were in public and this was a public hearing process and now we understand that the report will not be made public. Uh, and This is quite really uh, a, a way of undermining the spirit of openness and transparency. Now that's Dewa Mabinga, researcher at Human Rights Watch.
amore me ni befie en ele alabilila Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. Time is now 17.12. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. On Channel Africa, I am standing in for Spamelele Zondi. Now, the globe still marks the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. And uh, here's Professor Monique Marks, social worker and head of Urban Futures Center at the Durban University of Technology's thoughts on the relationship between substance abuse and gender-based violence. For the most part, people who are involved in problematic drug use, which means that, that drug use has become central to their lives or salient in their lives, uh, without which they can't actually function. They are generally using drugs on a problem, in a problematic way because they have been unable to sort of live with either historical trauma or disconnect or their lives are so complicated and difficult that drugs become a solution to already existing problems. Now, for some people who are engaged in problematic drug use, they would have in their past experience gender-based violence. And I'm talking about both both men and women. So a lot of the people who use drugs that we deal with in our opiate substitution therapy program as children have experienced violence against them. And that could have had some influence in their current use of drugs in a problematic way. We have in South Africa so many broken people that the system hasn't actually addressed much deep-seated problems that have led later on to problematic drug use and then to the kinds of gender-based violence that we see in the movie Ellen where a mom gets to a point where she can no longer take the abuse of her son and she enacts violence against him because she can't deal with what her son has become because he's using tuck. Mm. And at the same time, if we look at her life, her life is one of consistent um, abuse from being a child right up until the point at which she murders her own son. And now she has become an activist to assist people in the kind of situations that she was in. So what I'm saying to you is that there's a complex cycle here that we have to look at, and that is why is it in the first place that people get involved in problematic substance use, and it's usually because something has gone wrong in their lives before that. And it could be related to gender-based violence, but it could also be related to uh, death in the family. It could be related to extreme uh, depression around a lack of hopefulness in the future. I mean, remembering that in some places our young people face an unemployment rate of 40%, right? And that's Professor Monique Marks, social worker and head of the Urban Futures uh, Center at the Durban University of Technology and talking to Humutso Mapalani. In celebration of 16 days of activism and non-violence, several women living with albinism have spoken out about their lack uh, of pigmentation condition, how the lack of pigmentation condition makes them even more vulnerable in society. Now, the women participated in an intimate panel discussion organized by the South African-based charity Kulisa Social Solutions. Jane Robotata attended the event in Sandown, north of Johannesburg, and she filed the following report. 
I wanted to read so bad, but I couldn't read, and it was the most painful thing in the world. So I remember this one incident, a lady who was, happened to be drunk at a party, because I was a wild party animal, said to me, God loves me. And I was like, how can you tell me about a God who I don't know about? I mean, I feel like the life I am living on earth is already hell, so there is no God. That's Regina Mirindlovo. She is a South African actress, motivational speaker, and human rights activist who has overcome great adversities in her life as a girl and woman living with albinism. She spoke at an intimate panel discussion on the struggle faced by people living with albinism. It was following her encounter with a woman who affirmed that she is God's creation and her maker loves her unconditionally for Ndlovu to work hard and claim her space in the world. I went home that night and I... I questioned this so-called God. I said, how can you expect me to know you if you are the reason I cannot read and write? You made me like this. And from there, the next day, I got an audio Bible from my cousin. So that kind of was an answer to say, if there's an audio Bible, it means there's a way I can learn how to fit into this world. So I started listening to that audio Bible and comparing the words in the book to teach myself how to read. From there, I asked myself, this particular person that I want to be, this actress, this, this great woman, how does she look? How does she walk? How should she stand? What is the character that should represent that woman? And I started working on that. Esther Mutlabane is a goodwill ambassador for Casual Day South Africa, which is a project for persons with disabilities by the National Council of Persons with Disabilities. Also suffering from lack of pigmentation, Mutlabane explained why it was important for her to be part of the discussion. I want to change lives through my story and the message that I was trying to get across is a message of hope and resilience that you too can overcome, that the young child or the young girl sitting in the township, she must not think that she's a small kid in, in a huge world, that the world is her oyster that she too belongs in this in the society that is full of discrimination and prejudice and daily challenges, that she too can survive, that it's possible for her and that her dreams can also come true. One of South Africa's most influential models, motivational speaker and property consultant, Simba Gozo, represented men living with albinism but spoke for women. The reason I came here was obviously to listen to my fellow sisters, you know, that are going through the most and this doesn't pertain just to people and ladies with albinism but women in general, whatever shade of skin you, you are. The whole thing is that as men we need to understand that we play a role and our role, as primitive as it sounds, is to protect because at, at the end of the day it is males who are how I say, committing these crimes, it's males who are putting women in positions where for them to walk to the store at night it's a worry, am I going to get raped, am I going to get harassed. It's not a woman doing this but it's another man and as a man if you know your friend is doing this to his girlfriend, your job isn't to say no my boy I got you our secret no it's yeah hey, you're doing wrong and i'm reporting you that's it you need to speak about this it's wrong it's not right many south africans living with albinism face a daily struggle against discrimination on a continent where they are persecuted and considered a curse lorraine chuna is a mother to a nine-year-old daughter who was born with albinism as the brave and fierce mother that she is chuna has been working on various albinism campaigns to shine light on the injustices faced by children with albinism and was part of the albinism killers must fall march which took place in pretoria in june this year she said the targeting of people with albinism is becoming a great concern in south africa and i mean you're talking of so, um, locations here in South Africa, 
in Johannesburg because they're the ones that you know experience it more than we do and like if you had been at those meetings these are people coming from these backgrounds from you know Emakasi where their lives are constantly in danger even for them to come out for the albinism march not many did because they were fearful and I'm not talking far I'm just talking our locations Katlehong, Soweto you know locations more importantly because that is where they're experiencing threat of their lives after listening to the harrowing stories detailed by the panelists, such as the story of actress Regina Mirindlovu, who was molested by a school teacher while claiming to be helping her with school notes, Chuna acknowledged that she is even more worried for her daughter. I am very concerned and I think she's fortunate enough to be sort of in a safer environment to others, but she's not away from danger. So after hearing this, knowing what is going on, I'm even more worried. I think I'm going to be even more, I'm actually more overprotective now, but I don't think it's going to help. I just need her to be strong and to be vocal and to stand and know what is right and what is wrong because at the end of the day I won't be here forever. That's Lorraine Chuna, a South African mother to a nine-year-old daughter born with albinism. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. I'm an actress. I'm a motivational speaker. Born with albinism, um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Our two Cameroon youths, uh, a law graduate and a secondary school dropout, have mustered the courage to visit the crisis-prone English-speaking regions of the Central African state to plead with armed gangs, whom they say are mostly their age mates, to drop their guns and embrace peace to stop the war that has killed more than 1,200 people. Now they have as an instrument of peace a guitar and their voices that they use in passing messages of peace and song. Moki Kinzeka met them in the English-speaking northwestern village of Santa and uh, reports. These are the voices of 24-year-old Emmanuel Bilashi and 31-year-old Linford C. singing in the northwest village of Santa. In the song, the two are calling on armed gangs to drop their weapons and stop attacking, killing, kidnapping and destroying public buildings. They ask both the governments of Cameroon and the armed gangs to allow children to have their basic right to education. 
I'm a citizen of Cameroon and Cameroon is my country. I love my country. If anything is wrong in the house, you yourself, you must contribute. That is our own contribution because we are tired of war, violence. We need a bright future. We are still young. Schools are locked up. Our brothers and sisters are being killed every day and that is not what we want. We want a brighter future for the youth, for everyone. So that is what motivated us to bring our fellow brothers, our sisters, and let them drop the weapons. Violence is not what we need, but peace and love. Most important, unity among us. Magnificent Father, Magnificent God you are, Magnificent Father, Magnificent God you are, you don't do me better by sending Jesus Christ. In this other song, the two say the best gift of life is love. Linford C. says even the fighters need love. They are having consciousness and they are still having that soft spot in their heart for the love of the nation. We as young people, we want a future. We have a part to play like nation builders. We are telling ourselves that we don't want to be the leaders of tomorrow, but we want to be the leaders of today. If there is no platform of peace, then that dream of us or that reality of today, it is having no place. Now I'm just like a shining light. Magnificent Father, Magnificent God. Bilashi says they created the duo four months ago after violence in the northwest town of Bamenda killed one of C's family members and two of Bilashi's. Among the 23 people listening to them in Santa is 27-year-old Rigobert Kima. They are human beings before being fighters. Usually we say music pleases the heart. They are human beings, they have hearts also. They can listen to their song and even dance. Why not? We have seen it in Ivory Coast when there was war there. And artists like Magic System came out an album. And when you hear music, it's bringing you like a, a kind of peace and joy. It's like a call of the heart because singing is coming from the heart. We have seen it in other countries and it has bring a lot, a lot of stability, a lot of peace. Unrest in the north, west and south west regions began in 2016 when teachers and lawyers staged protests against what they called the marginalization of English speakers in this mostly French-speaking nation. The government says that since then, over 1,200 civilians, soldiers and armed separatists have been killed. Bilashi and C have performed in Santa, Bamenda, Akum, Nkwen, Bambili and Bambui. Many say the duo's initiative is courageous. Within the past two months, two missionaries, Charles Truman Wesco from the United States and Cosmas Ondari from Kenya were killed in the restive regions where they were preaching peace. Mancho Ivo, an inhabitant of Akum, whose poultry business has been shut down by the fighting, listened to the duo and liked what he heard. He said he prays their message can heal Cameroon. He added, we thank them for their courage, which may as well be the beginning of the solution to our problems. Victory belongs to him. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Santa 
northwestern Cameroon. Oh, victory belongs to Jesus. Victory belongs to Him. Oh, It's absolutely beautiful to see young people taking the lead in order to make sure that there's peace in their country. Now, speaking of young people and going out there and taking the lead, today marks the International Volunteer Day, which is celebrated on the 5th of December each year. Now, the day is viewed as a unique chance for volunteers and, organiza- and organizations to be celebrated for the hard work and efforts they make to improve their communities. Numbuiselo Tango reports. The United Nations UN has a volunteers program called the UNV, which contributes to peace and development through volunteerism worldwide every year. In 1985, the UN mandated the global observance of International Volunteer Day for Economic and Social Development, which is commonly referred to as International Volunteer Day. Governments, the UN system and civil society organizations have since successfully joined volunteers around the world to celebrate this day on the 5th of December. The 2018 Volunteer Day commemoration focuses on the values of volunteerism through the appreciation of local volunteers including marginalized groups and women who make up nearly 60% of volunteers worldwide and their impact on building communities. The United Nations Volunteers focuses on five key areas which are securing access to basic social services, community resilience for environment and disaster risk reduction, peace building, the youth and national capacity development through volunteering schemes. In the past year, various countries commemorated this Volunteer Day in different ways. In 2017, pupils and young groups took over the principal streets of Zwedru in Liberia where they had a clean-up campaign. They picked up plastics and other rubbish littered on the streets with rice bags and gloves in hand. The following day, the youth groups and students gathered in the Zwedru Youth Center where amongst singing an award ceremony and a few speeches were made also on the ideals of volunteerism. The program officer of UNV South Africa, Ambrose Tullet, spoke to an International Volunteer Day IVD event that was held in Alexandra Township, Johannesburg. He said volunteering in the country is an integral part of the culture rooted in social, cultural and community daily practices of belonging and caring for one another. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Nombuise Lotengo in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very big thank you to Nombuise Lotengo for that. Now the time is 17.30, going on 17.31 Central African time. And let's find out from Zolane if we are still safe and there are no bombs coming our way.
Definitely not Samora making headlines. Asawa, South Africa's National Council of Provinces has adopted the report of the Constitutional Review Committee, which recommends the amendment of the Constitution to allow for the expropriation of land without compensation. Gabon's President Ali Bongo is recovering well after being hospitalized in Morocco. And finally, a Houthi delegation has left for Sweden on Tuesday for UN-sponsored Yemen peace talks, the first since 2016. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Now, it may be surprising to some, but the International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, is playing an active role in helping the countries of the world where police serve reach the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Now, Global Police Chief uh, Jürgen Stock has been explaining how Interpol's set of seven global policing goals aim to create a safer world and not just for humankind. Now, he describes how taking on international wildlife poachers requires a strong collaboration between nations, industries and non-governmental organizations because no country and no region can fight this phenomenon in isolation. So since uh, a couple of years we have a very intensive cooperation with the United Nations and the UN General Assembly has taken an important decision that helps us in developing our cooperation with our 194 member countries. Are the member countries the same ones as the UN member states? They are almost the same ones. We have 194 and the UN have 193. What is the link between Interpol and the Sustainable Development Agenda? I mean, we help promoting some of the Sustainable Development Goals. We try to support the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Last year we have been endorsing a set of seven global policing goals, which means that the global police community, the community of 194 police services from all around the world committed themselves to support, for instance, the fight against international terrorism, the fight against organized crime, protecting our borders, uh, protecting our environment by fighting environmental crime. Just to name a few of these examples where we as global law enforcement try to support the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development of the United Nations. Can you just expand maybe on one of them? Take the example of environmental crime, which has become a multi-billion global criminal industry, whether it's poaching of wildlife or trafficking of illegal wildlife products. That requires a strong collaboration amongst member countries, also including international organizations. No country and no region can fight these phenomena in isolation because it really has become a global criminal industry. So we need to stand together. We need the political support. But we also need close cooperation amongst those who are responsible for security. And uh, we need a close cooperation actually with the private sector. And under the umbrella of the United Nations, we can strengthen this uh, global fight against this phenomena. Acting President Kim Jong-yang, he was elected to lead Interpol. What is your reaction? My reaction is that the executive committee is a very important supervisory body and maybe I should clarify that the position of president is the position of the chair of the supervisory board of Interpol, which is called the executive committee. It's composed of 13 representatives from all Interpol regions, from Europe, from Asia, from Africa and from the Americas. And it's a collective decision-making body that is again chaired by the president. The President is also chairing the General Assembly, but the day-to-day business is the responsibility of the Secretary-General. So there is no direct influence on the day-to-day business of Interpol. Nevertheless, this body is important and, of course, the position of a President is important. 
We have been endorsing the General Assembly actually as our prime decision-making body and endorsed our continuous reform program called Interpol 2020 Plus, where we have been implementing our strategies to fight terrorism, organized crime and cybercrime specifically, but also to continue reforms internally with regard to strengthening our legal mechanism, our data protection mechanism, our due diligence mechanism, so a number of reforms and processes in place which of course are also supported by the Executive Committee, which again has to supervise that the General Secretariat implements the decision taken by the General Assembly. That's the role of the Executive Committee and the President is the chair of this body. Cybersecurity. What kind of work do you do in that area? I mean, first of all, we try to bring all the relevant players together to fight cybercrime, which is by nature a borderless crime, because in, in the Internet, of course, we all know borders do not exist. So the member countries coming together, joining their forces against cybercrime is more important than ever, because we also see cybercrime evolving. It's, I think, an unprecedented complexity global law enforcement is facing in terms of the modi operandi, in terms of legal challenges. And we provide a platform where countries come together, join their forces, and we are also coordinating transnational operations. If, for instance, the perpetrator is in, on one continent, the service in, in another continent, and maybe victims of cybercrime are spread all over the world. We also very strongly cooperate with the private sector. We have very recently been uh, signing a cooperation agreement with the World Economic Forum to strengthen our cooperation with major industry players. Also to get access to relevant information which sits in the private sector, but also helping securing our systems because cybercrime, again, that's a threat for our private computers, but that's also a threat for our global critical infrastructures in our member countries. And it requires a strong global response, and Interpol is a part of this global law enforcement response. It sounds like a very tall task. True, yes, and that requires strong partnerships, like the partnership with various United Nations bodies that requires, again, cooperation with the private sector, cooperation with private actors, NGOs, who are doing excellent work in helping fighting different crime phenomena. So it's all about building these strong partnerships, and Interpol is providing the global platform for law enforcement to share relevant information and to coordinate our activities, but it's also a platform in better coordinating our cooperation, for instance, with the private sector. What keeps you the most awake at night? I mean, actually, there are indeed a lot of fronts. Currently, it's uh, the developments in terms of cybercrime, cybersecurity, because it's evolving very fast, the technological developments and the response that is still provided by nation states, but actually it, it requires, again, a globally coordinated response because criminals are not waiting. They are exploiting gaps in terms of legal gaps, maybe gaps in terms of the capacity global law enforcement uh, has or is not able to provide to be a strong part because we need strong alliances and strong networks against the networks of terrorism and organized crime and cybercrime. And that's Global Police Chief Jürgen Stock talking to UN Radio's Liz Scafidi. Hi, I'm Pulem Mulebati, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, 
Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Now, the chief executive of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Selo Hatang, has spoken out against the criminality that uh, characterized the end of the Global Citizen Festival outside the FNB Stadium this past Sunday on the anniversary of his death. Now, the event, which was graced by Beyonce Knowles Carter, her husband Jay-Z, Oprah Winfrey, DeBunge, and Casper Nuvest, amongst others, which was a tribute to former South African President Nelson Mandela on his centennial year. Now, today marks five years since Mandela's passing, and the Nelson Mandela Foundation, along with other organizations globally and locally, organized a variety of events to mark his centenary. Madiba was known for his selfless service for others. More from CEO at the foundation, Selo Hatang. Well, today we're going to be hosting journalists who reported on the passing of uh, Madiba. And the main reason we're doing so is to ensure that we remind ourselves that freedom of expression and freedom of the media remains central and core to everything that we need to be observing as South Africans as part of our constitutional democracy. Journalists are coming under fire, not only in South Africa, but globally. And until such time that we set the tone for how journalists and other media professionals are tra- treated, we won't go far as a nation. So we will be then marking this day uh, through reporting. Who planned for, for the reporting? How did they do it? Uh, both local and international media will be at the Nelson Mandela Foundation tonight at 6. And, and how close to your vision is this realization that um, freedom of expression is very important because the uh, Nelson Mandela Foundation has spoken a lot against um, journalists who have been gagged, uh, intimidation of journalists. How important do you think it is that the whole world realizes the importance of um, re- uh, media freedom? It's a critical one. And, and if you have first world countries, Mm. Countries that have had democracy for over 200 years, calling uh, media uh, and journalists, specific journalists, enemies of the people, you then have a problem. And I think it's important that those who set the tone for democracy, that democracy be freed for it to serve majority of people through how people access information. And I think it's important that we all observe that. And uh, it's critical for us as the foundation that that moment be, be observed. And we have over and over been saying that it cannot be right that you have a, 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 in our own country that the journalists are called names and they are threatened when they are walking in malls and, and considered mm. to be enemies of the people. And I think it's that that we need to be saying, as South Africans, what are we doing to help build that country that's more tolerant of journalists? Mm. Now, this whole year has been focused on what would have been 100 years for the former statesman. Has it been a successful year? Well, we, we want to thank the UN. We want to thank uh, uh, DERCO, our own international relations and cooperation department. We want to thank the presidency. But we also want to thank predominantly South Africans and people of the world who have observed Madiba's legacy with absolute dignity. You'll agree with me that for us to be holding global stars in South Africa Mm. in the form of a a global citizen was a defeating moment for Madiba and his stature. 
but that as we go through what we're doing at the moment, that we must remember that this is halfway through the centenary. The centenary basically started in July this year and will end in July next year. Mm -hmm. And we say we must then observe it with utmost respect that scenes that happened outside of a global citizen should not be allowed. That those who are pushing criminality, corruption, using Madiba's name this way, should be caught. And the law must uh, be meted out at them and the book be thrown at them. So that then those who want to do not comply with any legal system can then be shown that uh, in this country we are a country of laws. I mean, it's it's sad to then have people who are traumatized just having had such a a lovely experience and they then have their possessions taken and their lives being threatened. Mm. And I think it's that fear that we need to then be saying, in honor of Madiba, each one of us must make sure that we get rid of all kinds of fear, not just in South Africa, but globally. Mm. That those who are vulnerable, who feel discarded, who are always attacked in the form of women, gender-based violence be dealt with, that those who abuse children be caught, mm. and uh, that the law deal with them. We think that globally we've had a real tremendous success in observing Madiba. I mean, we have had uh, people in Italy, uh, host a game between uh, Florencia and Milan and, and we then have those big games that were dedicated to Madiba to have mm-hmm. over 22 presidents around the world praise him in, in, in the UN during the peace summit that's no mean feat to have 1.2 billion people watch mm-hmm. uh, President Obama deliver the Nelson Mandela annual lecture mm-hmm. it's no mean feat and all of us then need to say from this moment on what are we going to do to build Africa of our dreams Mm-hmm. Africa that's free, free of fear of dictatorship, Africa that's free, free of uh, all kinds of discrimination, including uh, homophobia. Mm-hmm. And to hear that people are being rounded up because they are suspected of being gay in Tanzania, it cannot be right mm-hmm. to then be hearing that uh, people are being rounded up because they follow a particular religion. It can't be right. And people lose lives because there's no, now new forms of slavery in Libya. So we need to then be saying, how do we build this uh, continent of Madiba's And that was Silo Hatang, Chief Executive at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, on the line talking to Ayanda Mkwanazi. The time is now 17.45 Central African time. It's time for Tracy Boomgaard to let us know what is happening with our money. Thank you, Samora. Malawi's Anti-Corruption Bureau has arrested a top police commander and a businessman with ties to President Peter Mutarika. The arrest of innocent Botomani relates to a graft scandal that has embarrassed the government. Mutarika previously faced questions over whether he profited from the award of a more than $3.5 million contract to supply food to the police force. The arrests come at a sensitive time for Mutarika, who is preparing to contest elections in 2019. South Africa's state-owned arms manufacturer, Danel, says it needs a financial injection of about $123 million for its operational projects and new programs. The cash-strapped entity says the money would produce returns in form of investments. Board chairperson, Montla Tlatla, told members of the Public Enterprises Portfolio Committee that managing Danel's current cash flow leaves no room for new enterprises. 
We will come and ask to be capitalized, but it will be a small amount of about 1.5. But for us, that money would be to the projects and we should be guaranteeing you a return on those projects. Just to say to you, while we are gradually becoming clever at managing our cash, we are well aware of the opportunity cost that lies there where we can't inject money into the new contracts. South Africa's power utility Eskom is calling on government to take on more than $7 billion of its debt as part of a turnaround plan. This was revealed as Eskom met with investors on a roadshow to London and the United States this week. Eskom chairperson Jabu Mabuza says the sales of its assets would not solve the parastatals problems and that a bailout or debt relief were preferable. The utility expects to make a loss before tax of more than $11.2 billion this financial year. The Zimbabwean government is considering allowing foreign investors to hold controlling stakes in diamond mines in the country. Currently, diamond mines are required to be 51% owned by domestic investors. The government scrapped the rule for most mines last year, but kept the regulations in place for diamond and platinum producers. Should President Emerson Mnangagwa remove the limit, it will signal to investors that he's serious about reviving mining. The Zimbabwean government is targeting diamond production of 12 million carats by 2023, compared with a forecast of 3.5 million carats this year. Farmers in France say they will carry out a series of strikes next week to protest against the increased financial charges on their operations. These latest strikes come as France attempts to appease Yellow Vest protesters. The Yellow Vest protests began on November 17th in opposition to rising fuel taxes. President Emmanuel Macron, a former investment banker, was heckled on Tuesday when he visited a burnt-out government building in central France. The U.S. dollar is trading at 10.28 Botswana Pula and at 11.78 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.84 Brazilian hail, at 66.56 Russian ruble, at 70.37 Indian rupee, at 6.84 Chinese yuan, and at 13.69 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,235 and platinum at $794 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $61.10 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Seventeen fifty Central African time. Let's find out what's happening in the world of sport with Musiburi Mokura.
Good evening, sports fans. And starting off with athletics news, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, as well as his deputy president, William Ruto, led Kenyans in congratulating Elliot Kipjoge after he was named the 2018 IAAF Male Athlete of the Year at a colorful ceremony in Monaco on Tuesday night. Now, Kipjoge set a new math and world record in Berlin back in September, smashing the previous best of by an incredible 78 seconds as he clocked in at 2 hours, 1 minute and 39 seconds. The Olympic champion's efforts was the largest single improvement on the math and world record since Derek Clayton improved the mark by two hours and 23 minutes back in 1967. Meanwhile, Colombian long and triple jumper Katarina Iguben was named Female World Athlete of the Year. She claimed triple and long jump honors in the Central American and Caribbean Games, the Continental Cup, as well as the Diamond League Final. Now to cricket news, young Zimbabwean leg spinner Brandon Mavuta has held the opportunity the Mzansi Super League has provided him, saying he's enjoying every moment of the experience thus far. Now the 21-year-old was one of the surprise names thrown up at the player draft back in October after being brought by, bought rather by the Durban Heat team. He was one of the three top quality international spinners on their books alongside Proteus ace Keshav Maharaj as well as global sensation Rashid Khan of Afghanistan. Mavuta says he's learning a lot from his teammates. It's been a pleasure being part of it and um, hopefully I'll, I'll get some games in and win games for my team. It's been great, like uh, you learn a lot from those guys and how, how they go about their business and how they, they take everything and so learning from them and learning them actually when you are there it's 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 something that is big for me so i'm taking as much as i can and learning as much as i can well, Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games organizers have formally proposed moving the start time of the math and races forward to avoid the worst of the Japanese capital's scorching summer heat. Our temperatures in Tokyo reached a record of um, 41.1 degrees Celsius this year, with the July average reaching more than 30 degrees since 1998. Now, the math and events were initially scheduled to start at 7 a.m. local time, but now game organizers have asked the IAAF, which is the athletics governing body, to approve moving the time to either 5.30 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. local time. Here is the chairman of the ROC's Coordination Commission of the Tokyo 2020 Games, John Coates. In previous Olympics, uh, we've studied it and we've got uh, Athens 36 degrees. Um, so uh, it will continue to be front of mind for us and the organisers uh, and front of mind for the teams that are coming here. Um, and uh, we'll do everything possible to ensure that um, they're not competing at risk. We'll have to have more shade um, as spectators waiting to go into, uh, to be checked for a credit, uh, checked ticketing and entry. There'll have to be more medical resources available in the open areas, case of problems. So it's, it's those sorts of things. There's a list of about 20 precautions they think we should <laughs> take and um, they're not going to be free. 
Ponte Tennis News, Andy Murray will use his protected ranking of, um, of the world number two to gain entry to January's Australian Open. Now, Murray ended his season early to focus on making big improvements, having played in six events since returning from hip surgery back in June. He will be joined by last year's semi-finalist, uh, Carl Edmund, as well as Cameron Norrie in the field of the men's singles event. Meanwhile, Serena Williams will return to Melbourne Park for the very first time since a winning while pregnant back in 2017. And finally, in golf news, it's been a disappointing 2018 for Charles Schwartzel, but uh, if the former Masters champion gets going this week, he could pull off one of the most significant wins of his career when the SA Open tees off at the Rand Park Golf Club in Johannesburg on Thursday morning. Now, Schwartzel's world ranking has plummeted to 85th in the world, and he hasn't won in two seasons. His last two wins came uh, back in 2016 at the Tswana Open, the Alfred Dunhill Championship, which he also won back in 2013 and 2014, as well as the Valspar Championship on the PGA Tour. Well, the Zaya Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap up the first hour of Africa Digest today. Be sure to join us again a little bit later on from uh, 1900 hours Central African time right here on uh, Channel Africa.